The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Amen. Hey guys, being church, and uh, I think it's important for all of you to be able to follow along with the scriptures. That way, I'm held accountable for what I say, which is always a good thing. Um, but I think it's also important that we just have an understanding and a, to be able to see the scriptures ourselves is very important. So if you don't have a Bible, we've got some we'd love to loan you. If you don't own a Bible, this is our gift to you and we pray that this will be something that God continues to reveal himself to you through. Just stick a hand up nice and high, the guys will take care of that. Um, in the meantime, turn to Galatians chapter 1 and uh, we're going to start in verse 11. I'm going to read through verses 11 through 24 and then we will pray. And uh, we'll get going. <coughs> and there's going to be a lot of that. I'm just warning you this morning. That cough just lingers, doesn't it? Some of you guys have been like, I've been coughing since Christmas. I just want you to know that is not an encouragement to me. I'd rather not know. You know what I'm saying? Lie to me. <clears throat> so Galatians 1, beginning in verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And then after three years, I went to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, or Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. And then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Let's pray. God, I pray that that would be the result of our time spent here, Lord. That the result of our time spent in your word, worshiping you in song, would be truly, Lord, just glorifying you. Declaring your goodness, your greatness, Lord, may, may I fade into the background. May there be no memory of who the worship leader or musicians were. May we walk away from this place with only the understanding that we have been in the presence of Jesus. I pray, God, that you would receive all glory due. Lord, we're not here to make much of heritage, certainly not to make much of me, but Lord, we are here to make much of you. And so I pray, God, that you would receive all glory and attention due your name. I pray your Holy Spirit would be our teacher this morning. Lord, that you would speak through me, anoint me, Lord, even by your spirit right now for the task of declaring your gospel. Lord, may the words I share be reflective of your heart, and Lord, may you stop those that won't be. I pray, God, that as we leave this place, Lord, we would take your words with us, that it would produce fruit in our lives, and that this wouldn't just be some other Bible study, 
gaining knowledge, a history lesson, a morality lesson, none of those things, God. But may we hear your words to our heart. And may we leave this place, Lord, so that not just us in our lives, but the people around us might glorify you because of us, Lord. And so, Lord, we need your grace for that. So I pray, Lord, you would move amongst us and you would grace your people with your presence and your word this morning. So, Lord, as your word says, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh, my King, my Rock, my Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, guys, we're in the book of Galatians. This is only our second sermon in this particular series in Galatians. Um, Two weeks ago, we started it out. If you weren't with us a couple of weeks ago, I beg of you to go back on our website, get into the podcast on iTunes, and get caught up. It's an important foundation and really continuation of what we're going to be talking about this morning. The book of Galatians is an important letter. I've been excited to teach this, partly because we've been in Corinthians 1 and 2 for over a year, and that just... it. It, it gets heavy, but Galatians is just a fun and important and beneficial book for us to study, spend our time, and I believe it's going to serve our church very well over this next season. Galatians is unlike most of Paul's letters. Um, Paul's other writings are usually sent to a specific church. That's not the case with Galatians. The book of Galatians is written to a region a collection of churches in what we would refer to today as modern-day Turkey. We're talking about Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, that area. It's a collection of churches that Paul had planted years previously, a very difficult thing, planting those churches. He went through a lot of hardship in that. He invested much of himself in that. And these churches were created and were thriving, but somewhere along the line, as we saw in Corinthians, People came in and began to pervert the gospel that Paul had planted in Galatia. Men came in that are referred to infamously as the Judaizers. And what they were saying is, yes, Jesus is our Savior. Yes, Jesus is the way and truth and life. Yes, we are saved by grace and faith in Jesus Christ. But you still need the Jewish part. You need to have grace and faith in Jesus, plus you need to still have, if you will, the prerequisite of Judaism. So they were telling people, you're not quite all the way there yet. Yeah, you have grace, but you forgot this, so you need to convert to Judaism so that your faith is made whole. And so they were preaching to men that they needed to go through all of the Jewish customs that were required for Gentile people. This is a non-Jewish territory here where he's writing to, that they needed to go through all the rituals to convert to Judaism. So men were having to get circumcised, always a popular message. They were having to do all of those things, all the rituals, the feasts everything. It was grace plus Judaism results in salvation. This is the message that was given. And so when Paul writes Galatians, he's fired up. It's righteous anger saying, no, stop putting a burden on my people. And he wants us to understand the reality of the freedom of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's really the emphasis of the entire book. Galatians has been referred to even as the Magna Carta of spiritual liberty. The idea that Paul wants us to understand things about the gospel that produce freedom and joy and worship in our lives. Now, this is important. I want you guys to know this because just to read through Galatians, especially the first couple of chapters, let's just be honest. If you're not understanding what's being described here and what's being taught, it can come off kind of boring. It comes off like doctrine, like dogma, and that's in a lot of places a bad word. 
If not bad, it's certainly one we don't really like, something we want to avoid. There are many people, even church growth experts would say, Jeff, don't preach doctrine or dogma. Man, we are in a postmodern world here. We're in a post-Christian world. If you come in with dogma and doctrine and this kind of stuff, you are not going to build a following. You are not going to grow your church. And I even read an article just this week about, written by a woman who had gone away from the faith. She'd been raised in Christianity her whole life and then walked away from the faith and has recently come back to Christianity and, and was writing. And she's a very outspoken, well-known speaker now. But in her article, there were some things that just bothered me. Because in her testimony, what she was saying is, what brought me back to Jesus was this experiential relationship with him, not doctrine, not dogma. I had had enough of all these things, all this theological language. That stuff was killing my faith. I just needed this relationship with Jesus. And I understand what she's saying. There's shades of truth in that. And I think that's what all of us would desire is this just experiential relationship with Jesus. But what I would say is that you can't have a full understanding of who Jesus is if you don't understand things like theology and doctrine. The problem is, is that we haven't really understood theology and doctrine, and we've taught for so many years these deep understandings of Christianity as if it's this burden. It's like a, a, a seminary classroom to put on people's shoulders. And so what we get is worship's warm and fuzzy, and I feel something, and I love this, but study, uh, I don't want that. I just want to be with Jesus. But right doctrine Right theology, a right understanding of the things that Paul's writing here in Galatians, it's intended to produce worship in us. It's intended to show us who Jesus is, what he's done for us. And a right doctrine should be liberating to a Christian. If you're studying doctrine and theology and it's burdensome, you don't get it. You're not studying it right or someone's teaching you wrong. And Paul's entire letter of Galatians is filled with doctrine, filled with theology, but the end result of which would produce freedom. Not, not claustrophobia, but a deep breath, chains falling away and just rest like, wow, what a savior we serve. So this is the intention of Galatians, and I think that as we walk through it over this next season, I think that's going to be the result. And we're going to say some things and look at some things in here that will even challenge some of your preconceived notions about church and about religion and about law and about grace. And sometimes, for parents especially, might even be flat out scary for us to understand. But it's the truth of the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it should set us free. We should be a better worshiping church at the end of Galatians than we were when we started. That's the goal. So Paul writes this letter in Galatians with the intent of freeing the people of the area of Galatia. He wants heritage to be set free by the gospel he's going to teach. And so in this, particularly in chapter 1, there's five things that Paul does point out to us that we're just going to run through today and we're going to be done. Five things Paul wants us to understand about this gospel. And the first of which is by way of review but is still important for us to look at is found actually in verses 6 through 8. And it's the reality that there is how many gospels? One. There is only one gospel. Paul says in verse 6 of Galatians 1, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ 
and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be cursed. So Paul says, number one, if you're taking notes, and I hope you all are, number one, that we need to understand, we should know this about the gospel of Jesus Christ, is number one, there is only one gospel. There aren't different flavors of the gospel. There aren't different interpretations of the gospel. Different interpretations of the gospel are false teachings. There's the gospel and everything else. Paul wants to make this really clear. And so we spent time, last time we were together in Galatians, talking about ways in which that one pure gospel can be perverted and distorted and destroyed, even still today in our age. One of them is licentious living. What you can do is say, you mean to tell me that the gospel tells me that I am free and saved by grace, by faith in Jesus, apart from any works that I've done, I don't earn my salvation, it's just a free gift from God, and he loves me completely no matter what I've done or no matter what it is I'm going to do tomorrow. He loves me perfectly now? Yes. And some people would go, that's awesome, because that means I can do whatever I want. I've been saved by faith. He approves of me. He loves me. He delights in me apart from my works, so I'll just do whatever I want. And there are literally people who, according to their testimony, are saved into the church, though you could certainly debate that if this is your lifestyle, as a form of like life insurance or fire insurance, if you will. I'm saved. I got my membership card in my pocket. I'm in the club. Now, I'll just go on living any old way I want. I'll live a life completely devoid of any sort of interaction with God. I don't need Jesus for anything. I've got him now to get in the club. And then later at the end when I die and I go into heaven, I'll pull out my membership card. I'll be able to show him that I'm part of the church. But in my life in between, or maybe my life Monday through Saturday, I won't live in any way that is at all discernibly different from anyone else. I'll do whatever I want. And then I've got my fire and I'm in the club. And and Paul would say, no, no. No, that's, that is a distortion of the gospel. The gospel teaches us that we have been saved from something to something. We've been saved from sin to life in Christ. That the gospel is not just a membership card, but, but it is the power to a new life, which Paul's going to talk about his own former life in a few minutes. How he's dead to that old way of living. He's not perfect by any means. It's a life of repentance for sure, but he's been saved to something else. And how could someone who's experienced the real gospel of Jesus Christ ever say, therefore Jesus makes no difference in my life whatsoever today? God forbid. That's a false gospel. That was, in many ways, the Corinthian problem. The Corinthian people, saved by grace, living horribly licentious, just fleshy, um, worldly lifestyles, coming to church on Sunday feeling like they're good. Paul would say, no, that's a false gospel. But, but maybe a, an even bigger problem, maybe those of us that grew up in the church or here kind of in Medford, which is sort of, let's face it, sort of the Bible Belt of Oregon, if you will, if, if we could, if we, we said maybe that's not so much our issue, though we clearly see it and at different times in our life have lived it, maybe our bigger problem is not the licentious part of it, it's the other distortion that is so much more subtle and seems so much more spiritual. And that is 
religious living. That is legalism. And so it's this idea. We have been saved by grace, but we also need this, 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 and this. And so our Christianity becomes defined by Jesus plus the law. This is the Galatian problem. There's these Jewish men coming in saying, you are saved by faith in Jesus and the way that you keep the law of Moses. They are equally important. One has not done away with the other, but that's not what Paul's gospel teaches, what Jesus' gospel teaches, that Jesus fulfilled the law and that in him we have salvation. And so a legalistic approach says, then this grace thing seems way too good to be true. We can't just go preach that because our fear is, is that they'll go to licentious living. We forget that the gospel is the power to Christian living and that it is a new life. And so we think that if we preach the gospel and we don't throw in all these other rules, then they're just going to drift naturally into this form of legalism. But Paul says, no, the gospel is the power to Christian living. In fact, if you don't understand the reality of the freedom and the grace of Jesus Christ that he's given, you have no shot at ever pulling off the other anyway. Because you've started your entire faith experience based on a false gospel. He said there is one gospel, one gospel that Jesus Christ himself saw our hopeless situation. He intervened in human history. God became flesh, walked among us. He went to the cross. He lived a perfect, sinless existence, the kind that we couldn't possibly do. Went to the cross on our behalf where God poured out all the wrath that he had against sin and mankind on the shoulders of Jesus Christ himself. That Jesus paid our penalty. (coughs) And then Jesus rose from the dead and has ascended into heaven and now offers us the righteousness that he has earned if we will simply put our faith in him. that we confess our sins, we turn from that old life and we put our faith in Jesus Christ, that that is a free gift of grace. Forgiveness, acceptance, love, heaven, the whole thing, based not on what we do, but what on Jesus Christ has done. That's the gospel. There's no other gospel. There's no, yeah, but you forgot. No, I didn't. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's the first thing Paul wants us to understand. There is only one gospel. And it's just, it's important that we understand that part. Because if we're constantly adding on legalism, if we're saying, yes, it's grace, but you also need this, (coughs) then we will lead people into a situation where they're always looking for evidence of their salvation by looking internal. You're always going, how do I know that I'm saved? Because I went to church this week. How do I know that I'm safe? Because I gave this much. Heritage sent their financial statement out this week. I got mine. I'm, pre- I'm in. I'm saved. How do I know? You're always looking internal. And what, what that means is you're taking your, your eyes off the Savior. You're looking to your own works. And sooner or later, you can become just like the Pharisees in Jesus' day. You don't need Jesus at all. It's all based on what you do. Paul says that is not the gospel. The gospel points everything to one place, and that is Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen. Amen? There's how many gospels? Everybody say it out loud. One gospel, and every other gospel is a false gospel. The second thing he wants to get across to us for us to understand regarding this gospel is now in our text that we're focused on today. (coughs) Excuse me. In verses 11 through 12, he wants us to know that this gospel is divine in origin. This gospel is divine in origin, and this is really important. I say that about everything, don't I? It's true. This is really important. 
Look at verse 11. For I would have you know who? Brothers. Say that again. I would have you know who? Let me put in a little parenthesis here. Who's he writing to? He's writing to brothers. He's writing to people of the faith. Paul is teaching the gospel to who? Christians. This is important to remember. Because for so long, especially 70s, 80s, 90s, there was this forgetfulness of the importance of the gospel. And we looked at the gospel as sort of the doorway in, sort of like 101 level Christianity. We need the gospel to get saved, but then we move on to other things. And so let's focus now on eschatology and when Jesus is coming back. Or let's focus on justification or sanctification. We'll study all these other things, biblical theology, whatever, deep things. But the gospel was considered sort of like kindergarten. Everybody needs it. It's the foundation. It's how you get into the school system. But we're not going to keep building blocks anymore. We're going to move on to other things. That is so untrue. Paul is constantly preaching the gospel to Christians. Because Christians need to hear the gospel just as much as unsaved people do. We, we need to be reminded. We need to be reminded of the motivation of why we do what we do. We need to be reminded about God's heart for us. We need to be reminded where the actual power for change in our life comes from. I mean, Christ, the gospel is not just the doorway in. The gospel is the foundation that we build everything else on. The gospel is the walls that separate us from the world around us. The gospel is the roof that shelters us from the storms that life send our way. The gospel is the window that we look through to see the rest of the world. The gospel is the pillow that we rest our head on at night. There is nothing deeper. We never leave an understanding of the gospel. The gospel is everything to us. Amen? And there are people, like, they will go into a Christian bookstore looking for some new book to read. And books that are about the gospel, they feel like, well, I've already got that. I'll move on. Christian, let me beg of you, don't be so quick to dismiss the most important thing we could ever, ever reflect on. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that's a parenthesis. That's a sermon for another day. He says, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. <coughs> For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is what he wants us to understand. This gospel I preached, and this is really Paul's main point in all of chapter one. I didn't make this up. Paul's saying, this isn't my take. Now, you got to understand, in that day, different rabbis had different interpretations, different understandings, different, they, it was even referred to as the yoke different interpretations that you would take this rabbi's yoke upon yourself, like his interpretation of the Torah and what it means to live a life that would bring honor to God and give you favor with God. That was his yoke. And so if you were a disciple of a rabbi, you would take that rabbi's yoke upon you. And so you're taking with it all the customs, all the laws, do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. This is why it was so revolutionary when Jesus said, my yoke is what? Easy. My burden is light. He was preaching against legalism from the beginning. And so all these different rabbis had different takes of what a lot of these things looked like, what it meant to follow, to be a, a, a follower of God, to be part of the family of God. But Paul's saying, look, this is different than that. 
This isn't like my take, my philosophy. These Judaizers that are coming in and they're saying, yeah, 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 I know Paul's saying that, but Paul's leaving out this. No, 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 you need to understand, this isn't about Paul. This isn't something I made up. This came from Jesus Christ himself. This is not man's gospel. Man's gospel always looks the same. No matter what form it is, whether you're religious or not, man's gospel is always the same. It's reverse engineered. This is my goal. This is what I want. Now here are the things that I need to do to get there. If you're a non-believer, an atheist even, you still do that. You still make your life about something. You still say, to me the meaning of life is this. The goal in life is this. I want prestige. I want money. I want family. I want whatever the thing may be. And so I will orient my life in such a way to do these things that I might achieve this goal at the end. Or if it's religion, then you would say, I want favor with God. I want admission into the kingdom of God. I want to be one of God's children. Therefore, here are all the things that I need to do in order to earn this. That's man's gospel. But Paul's saying, this is not man's gospel. This is not about all the things that you need to do. And it's, it didn't even come from me. This gospel is that it's a gift. It's freely given. And look, no one would make this up. Let's just be honest about it. I mean, if, if you're building a following, if you're starting a movement, and you want to you start this religion that you hope is going to take over the world, and you're making this up, no one would start the way Paul starts this. No one would. I mean, I would do it completely differently. We would start off by buttering people up. Anybody watch the president's speech this week? They're all the same. I mean, if you're a Democrat, I'm not picking on you. They're all the same. The speeches always start off the same, don't they? America's the greatest country in the world. And then we get all those stories. Remember the stories? I met an American just this week, single mom, who picked herself up by her bootstraps. And she's, and it's just pumping you up, and it shows them in the crowd, and, and it's just like, we live in the greatest country in the world, man, we are amazing, man, and just pump everybody up, and they're buttering you up, and you know something's coming, you just know something's coming, it's like your kids, when they're young, they come up to you, and they go, dad, I love you, you're like, what do you want, what, what, what do you want, <coughs> and they even throw in the, remember how I did this for you, and remember how I did this for you, just like our kids, dad, so, um, Remember how I cleaned my room yesterday just like you told me? It's the same thing. It's buttering someone up to get what you want from them. And if I was building a religion that I wanted a following, this is what I would do. I would say, you guys are important. You guys are valuable. You are beautiful, gifted. Man, with you and I together, we could do, and that's how you would teach it. That's not what the gospel is. The gospel says, um, you're dead. That's where it starts. You're all wretched, dead sinners. Come with me. That's the reality of the gospel, though. Who would make that up? I mean, I mean, look, I don't even have a slide for this, but we don't need one. Like, five, six pages to your right. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2, and let's just look at this really quickly. <coughs> if you are, look, guys that are in the discipleship equip program that we're doing, if you're looking for a text we're looking for chunks of scripture to memorize over this coming year, this would be a great one. Ephesians chapter two, particularly Ephesians two, one through 10. It is one of the best, most succinct descriptions of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a really valuable text, if not to memorize, 
definitely to be familiar with. Paul presents the gospel in Ephesians, and he starts off right out the gate, verse 1, chapter 2, and you were dead in trespasses and sins. And then it gets better. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Paul starts out and says, here's man's, forget man's gospel, here's the true gospel. You're dead, you are following the spirit of the power of the air, in other words, Satan, and you are objects of the wrath of God. Follow me. That's the gospel. No one would make that up. But praise God for the reality that comes after that as Paul goes on in verse four and says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. That is a beautiful, succinct, and glorious description of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we were dead. All these that would want to say, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this. How many dead people have you seen do anything? I mean, think about this. There are not degrees of dead. There's different degrees of life. Some people's life may be lived more to the fullness or someone who is, is a quadriplegic or someone who is in a coma. They're alive, but their life is restricted. There's only so much they're going to be able to do and enjoy compared to someone else. But there's no degrees of death. If you are dead, you are dead. It doesn't matter how dead, you're dead, right? Paul says you're dead. Dead people do nothing. They tell no tales and they do no works. And really, Paul's gospel is, it puts man in a passive position. The work is done all by Jesus. He even says, look, you are his workmanship. You are the work that God is doing. You're not working for him. You are his work. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That flies in the face of legalism that says we have to earn God's favor. It says, no, you are evidence of God's favor because he is working in your life. It's not man's gospel. And Paul also wants them to understand this. I didn't make this up because there's also these other men coming in with their philosophies and their teachings. But Paul, as he goes on, going back to Galatians, as he goes on in the rest of Galatians chapter 1, he says, look, when I got saved, I was saved through direct revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself approached me, spoke this gospel to me. I was saved. And I didn't go like meet with all the other apostles and like learn all their doctrine and now I'm just passing and peddling what they taught me. I wasn't even around them. 
He says, they heard me preaching in Jerusalem. They heard the message, and them, having been with Jesus themselves, are only confirming my message. This is what this means when he says in verse 22, 23, and 24, they heard him preaching the gospel, and they were like, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not ours, not his. That's the same gospel we've been taught. So he's saying, you can trust this gospel. This did not come from men. And ladies and gentlemen, this is something that we fail to properly understand and, and value. Like We do not follow a faith that has been created by the wisdom of men over the period of years. We stand on the very word of God. Everything, I, I hope, everything that I'm teaching this morning that we look at in these scriptures, it wasn't written by men's ideas or revelation. This is the very word of God. And that is so good because it gives us stability. We're not building our teachings here on things that might change in another two years or three years. The beauty of Christian doctrine that's right doctrine is that it has always stood the test of time. I mean, look at so many who take not just the word of God and the scriptures, but some of the people of God, and they hold them up as being somehow equal. I mean, you could even look at false doctrines. For example, the Mormon church. I mean, for many, many, many years, a black person could not serve in leadership or the eldership of the Mormon church. You could not do that. And it was based on some horrifically racist teachings from way back that said that those of dark skin, that that is a, a scar, if you will, evidence that they are children of fallen angels, Satan's children, and that white people are of the lineage, if you will, of Jesus or of God himself. And therefore, no black person could ever serve in eldership or the priesthood of the Mormon church. That was a standard Mormon doctrine for a long time. And then at a certain point, the leaders got together and thought, you know what, this doesn't work anymore. We're in a different day, different age, different understanding. And so they made a change. And praise God, I'm glad any sort of racist policies need to be gone. Those are demonic in nature by their own sake. But they go and just suddenly change doctrine. So, so what keeps that from changing the next time? What, what's the next thing to change? How would doctrine change in the next 10 years or the next 10 years or the next 10 years? What are the whims or the, the tides of culture that might shift what it is that we believe? Well, we don't have to worry about that because the scriptures have stood the test of time. Young people, the things that you are being taught, that these are just things men wrote, and we don't even really know what was really written back in the day, it is baloney. It is false. I mean, it, it would probably benefit us at some point one of these days, if not on a Sunday, then on a Wednesday or something, to just spend a week or two really understanding how it is that we got this very book here in our hands in the first place. The blood that has been spilt, the miracles that took place to preserve the word of God, the accuracy by which this word has been preserved. I tell you, these things here represent the living, breathing word of the creator of heaven and earth himself. They are trustworthy, they are true, we can build our entire lives upon them and we will never be ashamed. We might stand out against the culture for sure. You might experience persecution for sure. But this is an unchanging truth. It is important to know. The Bible says that the word became flesh. Jesus said, not I teach the truth. He said what? I am the truth. And there is comfort in that. As a pastor, there is supreme comfort in this 
Because there's things I'll teach from time to time that aren't popular, to be sure. But the comfort for being able to say, God said it, I believe it, that settles it as the bumper sticker goes. That is a great piece for us. Don't believe what the culture is telling you. Just study history in general. Men's philosophies have changed like the wind from the beginning of time, but God's word has preserved, and Jesus promises it will preserve until the day he comes again. Amen? So he says, this gospel does not come from man. It is divine in origin. That is important, important for us to understand. Number three, this gospel saves everyone. Number three, this gospel saves everyone. I love this. I think this is fascinating. I never considered this before until just last week. Look at Galatians 1 verse 13. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Now, we all know Paul's story. Most of us do. Paul, who was a Jew, was violently opposed to Christianity. And he had dedicated his life to opposing the church, rounding up Christians. They were persecuted, murdered, arrested, tortured, all under Paul's oversight. This is who Paul was. But here's the reality. I think even though we know that's true, we fail to really grasp the seriousness of it because I think sometimes we give Paul a pass knowing who he ends up being. I mean, he wrote most of the New Testament. Paul's a good guy. That's how we tend to think of it. And we esteem Paul. But instead of just saying, hey, Paul persecuted the church, that's a word that can sometimes just sort of fall on deaf ears because we just get used to it, especially those of us that grew up with Paul coloring pages in Sunday school as a kid. So let me use a word that might bring a little more emotion and help us to even more accurately understand exactly what Paul's saying here. Paul was a terrorist. Now, that's not hyperbole. That's not just kind of like a terrorist. Paul was a terrorist. Paul is the guy who would hijack planes for his faith. Paul is the guy who would have people beheaded for, I mean, that's Paul, ISIS, all that. Paul, just a different faith. This is what he did. He violently, these are strong words in the Greek language that are being used here, violently persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. It doesn't get any more wicked, dark, demonic, fleshly than that. I mean, what could we even talk about in our day and age that would bring, make the hair on the back of our neck stand up more than talking about the dark and demonic things that are going on in the Middle East at the hands of ISIS right now? I mean, what could we even think of that could be that dark? That's what he's saying. Paul was an absolute fanatical terrorist. But now think about this. So he's on this wicked, fleshy, dark, disturbing side of Paul. But think about this. What are his motivations for doing all that? Look at verse 14. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. So Paul is a fascinating case study of the gospel because he is as wicked as it gets and as religious as it gets. He's a case study in both. And and think about what he's doing. Here's a little uh, side uh, observation about self-righteous people. Of course, I'm not talking about anyone in this room, but if anyone here has ever spent any time around anyone who is self-righteous, you've noticed something about them. Think about what Paul says here. I was so zealous to defend God's law 
that I violently and wickedly broke God's law. That's what he's saying. Because murdering Christians would be against the law of Moses, and yet he's using the law of Moses as validation for doing what he's doing. I was so zealous for God's law and religion that I broke God's law and killed Christians. And if you've ever spent any length of time around people that are genuinely self-righteous, here's what you'll notice. Self-righteous people are hyper-aware of everyone else's sin and completely unaware of their own. This is where Paul is. I mean, it doesn't even add up to him that he's breaking the very law he espouses in murdering people because of the law of Moses. And that's the way self-righteous people tend to be. Look down their nose at everyone else. Look at all the sin that everyone else is committing, being completely unaware of their own sin. And and it can go so far that a lot of times when self-righteous people and their self-righteousness starts to cause relationship problems in their own life, and let's face it, it does, they're just not fun to be around, right? And so when someone is self-righteous and they inevitably start driving people away because of their self-righteousness, they even spiritualize that. They go, well, it's just persecution for my righteousness. They just can't handle this holy lifestyle. And literally, We'll look at when there were people that are rejecting them, they would say, it's not because of sin, it's because of my righteousness that they just can't handle being around me. No, you're just a jerk. You're just a jerk. And no one wants to be around you because you make everyone feel horrible. But that was Paul. I would imagine Paul was not a fun guy to hang out with. This was Paul. So think about Paul. He's a fascinating case study of the gospel. Paul says, this was my former life. So are you here and you're self-righteous? If you're aware of that, you're ahead of the game. Because most people that are self-righteous, by definition, don't even realize that they're self-righteous. So if you're like offended by even the things I'm saying right now, that's God's grace in your life saying, that's you. Of course, no one in this room. But if you are, then this is the beauty of it. The gospel of Jesus Christ can change that and make that your former life. And that arrogance that you look down your nose feeling like you've got everything covered and you're better than everyone else, man, God can save you from that and create in you a humility and a grace and a mercy that more accurately reflects the grace and mercy of our King and Savior to the world around. He can save you and that can be your former life. And for some of you in this room, that is your former life. You've been that guy that looks down at everyone else and fails to consider even their own sin. When the gospel, as Paul's gonna write later in Galatians, says even when we confront sin in others, when we see it, we do it how? Humbly considering ourselves, lest we also be tempted. That there should be this air of, I'm broken too, the gospel guarantees it. An understanding of the gospel guarantees that I'm not, I have nothing to be self-righteous about because my righteousness played no part in me being saved anyway. I brought nothing to the table. Jesus did all of the work, so I have nothing to boast in. That's what Ephesians says, lest we should boast. But maybe your, t- your story's darker than that. Maybe your story's more, my life's made up of sex and drugs and wickedness, violence, murder, the same gospel can change you too. I mean, Paul is a case study that there is no one outside the massive and incredible transformation that the gospel can bring into our lives. The same gospel saves the religious self-righteous sinner and saves the worst of the worst licentious sinner 
as well. This gospel saves everyone. It's the same, we, you're going to preach the same gospel to everyone, regardless of who they are or what they're dealing with in life. And it's the same power. Jesus saves us all. Only Jesus. Amen? So Paul would say, this gospel saves everyone. Number four. And this is important too. I keep saying that, right? This is really important. <coughs> the gospel doesn't just save everyone, but look how beautiful it is how God saves Verse 15, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was, what's that word? Please, come on, you know it, say it out loud. Was what? Pleased to reveal his son in me. Number four is this, it pleases God to save. It pleases him to save. And this is just a good reminder that I hope will just bring some delight to your heart this morning. Because I think sometimes we can take the attitude that, okay, God saved me, but it's because he had really sort of already put this whole deal together and he, oh, Jeff signed up? Ugh, all right, you're with me. Like we're the last guy picked for volleyball, but you have to pick everybody so you're stuck on the team? That's not true. And I also think that sometimes we can look at it that when God saves us, there's this scowl on his face, but once we repent from our sin, then he's like, okay, now you're in the club, now I love you. And that's not the case either. I mean, think of Paul's testimony. Paul's on his way to Damascus. He's on the road to Damascus. The, the story's given in the book of Acts. He tells the story himself in Acts 22 and 26. He's on his way to Damascus, papers in hand to arrest and persecute more Christians. He's going to kill more people. And Jesus shows up, blinds him, knocks him off his horse. He's on the ground. Now, I, I think we read that story wrongly, a lot of us in our minds. I think what we picture is here's Paul and Jesus shows up and bam, off his horse and Paul's on the ground and Jesus is like, why are you kicking against the goads? Why are you persecuting my people? And yet that's not what Paul says right here. Paul says, what was the attitude of Jesus' heart? What was the attitude of God's heart when Paul was saved? It was joy. It was pleasure. It was delight. That's a good remembrance, a good thing for us to remember. God didn't get stuck with you. He's not angry and frustrated with you, and you better repent or you're, he delights. The day that you gave your life to Jesus, there was joy and celebration in heaven. Whether you're religious or self-righteous, you go, well, of course he delights in saving Paul. Paul's gonna write most of the New Testament. I mean, he's Paul, for goodness sakes, but Paul takes that completely out of the equation. He says it here in the text. He says, before, he had set me apart before I was born. Like, he brought nothing to the table. He hadn't written the New Testament. The only thing he had written was persecution orders, and they were in his hand. And Jesus delighted to save him. Do you know that? Like, the confession of sinners coming to a saving faith in Jesus, it's not punitive. He's not looking for someone to grovel just enough to satisfy his frustration and then let you in. He's smiling. He delights in saving you. Your name brings a song to the heart of God. And he finds joy in that. The creator of heaven and earth 
the one who spoke everything we see into existence, and the one who one day will come in great power and great might to wipe all of sin off the earth. Your name brings delight to the heart of God. I think that's pretty cool. He delights in you. Man, don't fall, as I called it, don't fall for the Abraham Lincoln Memorial God, that statue that's cold and stern and staring. Paul says, it pleased him to reveal his son to me. God delights in saving. And I think that should fuel our prayer life for the people that we know that aren't saved. Because we're praying for something that God takes great joy in doing. That should give us motivation to pray all the more. That we're praying something in accordance with not just God's will, but what God delights in doing. Amen? And God delights in you. It brings him pleasure. The last thing now, and we'll be done. (coughs) We've seen the gospel that God saves. We've seen who God saves, the religious, the irreligious. We've seen how he saves in delight and in joy. But let's ask why. Why? Why would God do that? Why would God go through the effort? What's the point of all of that? Paul says next in verse 16b, It was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And then fast forward, if you will, to verse 23. He says, they were hearing it. They said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And verse 24 says, and they glorified God because of me. The reason that you can't possibly understand the gospel and live a licentious lifestyle that says, I'm saved and now I can go do whatever I want, is because God has saved us to something. He has put new life in us. When we, convert, when we have been converted, changed, when we become a child of God, he has put his spirit into us to empower us to live a life that brings glory to him. And so you've been saved. I don't care who you are or what your job is. You've been saved to be a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've been saved to preach the gospel to everyone around you. You've been saved so that verse 24 might describe you, that the people around you in your life might glorify God because of you. Now, here's where people mess up, and some of you are already doing it. Because I can go, you've been saved so that you can do this. And you can switch right back into legalism and go, all right, dang it, I'm saved. All right, I better build my list now because I've got like my normal life over here. But now I'm going to have to start adding to it that I got to preach the gospel and I got to go street witnessing. And you start building all these lists. Look, if you're already doing that in your mind, then you don't get it. Like God has made you his child who you are now in life. And so he's not made you an engineer on Monday through Friday and then a preacher once you sign out so that you can go street witnessing at night. He's made you an engineer who glorifies God as an engineer in life every day of the week. He's made you a father, a school teacher, a preacher, a, a police officer, whatever it is that you do so that you might preach the gospel through everything you do in word and in deed Every day. It's not an add-on to our life. We talked about this at that round table the other week, that it's not like a whole other thing I now had to add to the busyness of my life. It's part of the natural rhythm and flow of our life. We now live as God's missionary in everything that we do. It's not 
now I have to go do this so that I can be a Christian. No, no, no. It's I am a Christian, therefore this is what I do. And we bring glory to God in every aspect of our life. Everything you do is important. It matters. I don't care what you do for a living. If you're unemployed, then when you're going to the unemployment office or you're going to apply for jobs, even in that, you are bringing glory to God through the way that you talk, the grace that you show, the joy on your face that's reflective of the joy of God, the mercy that you have on people when you see people going through difficulties. In everything that you do in life, people should see Jesus in you. When it says they glorified God because of me, And the whole idea of glorifying God means to manifest something of who God is in a tangible way for the people around us. So as we live, we live in such a way that people see Jesus in us. The gospel has given you the power to magnify, to bring to life who God is and who Jesus is all around you, whether it be your kids at home, if you're a stay-at-home mom, or whether it be in the mission field if you're a missionary, or whether it be going to work this week as a doctor, there is something of Jesus that people need to see in how you operate day to day. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is what gives us that power to do that. So may it be said of us, Heritage, that we've heard the one true gospel and that we have been freed by that gospel from sin or from religion and that because of that gospel, we now have been set free to just be, to be a child of God, to show our faults, but even in those, be able to point people back to Jesus to show the grace and forgiveness he's given us, to show that, yeah, we're not perfect, but that the gospel assures us his mercies are new every single day day. And our faith is not based on how good we are, but on how good God is. And that's the pillow that we rest our head on. There's people around you that need this gospel because they are hopelessly consumed by man's gospel. Chasing things in this world that will inevitably let them down and working their tails off, trying to earn favor from God that he's already freely given them, purchased through his son. Be missionaries, church. Be missionaries in what you do. Amen? Sam's going to come up and close us in song. Will you stand with me and let's pray? Can I encourage you too, if you're in this room, man, maybe that whole licentious, religious versus full-on sinful, whatever it is, maybe that's not your former life. Maybe that's your present life. Man, it can be. Man, Jesus Christ died and paid the penalty for all of our sin that we might be set free from that, that we might have a new life of freedom and a new identity as children, as sons and daughters of God. If you have not experienced this grace in your life, I beg of you, please, as the music's playing and as church ends, just slip out of your rows. You're not gonna disturb anyone. If they look disturbed, punch them and then make your way to the back of the sanctuary. There's gonna be some elders and huddle leaders that are back there that would love to pray with you and help you experience and know the grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's important. You desperately need it. And if you don't have it, you're working too hard or you're working too hard for things that are going to fade and leave you empty in the end. Will you give your life to Jesus? Come, receive the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Join the family of God and be set free from these burdens. 
And the rest of you, may you be set free from the pressures, from the religion, from continuing sin, and may we be set free to just be, to just be the children of God. God, even as we close in song, Lord, may you convict our hearts, Lord, of things that we need to approach or address. I should say, Lord, things that you desire to address. May you set people free from bondage of religion, from bondage over sin, And I pray, God, that you would change lives. Even now, Lord, there are people in this room whose hearts are beating because your Holy Spirit is tapping on the door of their heart. God, I pray even now that your grace would empower them to walk to the back and receive you, Jesus. May you change lives this morning. And Lord, for those of us who have given our lives to you that are part of your family now, may you continue by your grace to change us all the more. We love you, Jesus. You've been so good to us. May you receive even this song from a heart of worship and gratitude from your people in Jesus' name. To the cross I